0: Podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or BTS.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism.
1: Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the greatest podcast not just in the reformed and presbyterian atmosphere but the greatest podcast in all categories in the world today that's right larger for life and it's even greater today because we are missing matt adams and currently missing nick bullock so some would say well, you're only at partial strength. I would argue we are at greater strength with just Sean Morris, Stephen Weber, and myself, Derek Brott, the Honorable Right Reverend Derek Brott. And today we'll be discussing Westminster Larger Catechism, question 39. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? Very good question. Who would like to take this one? Sean, would you like to... Kick us off here?
0: Be glad to. So, in our last episode, we're still dwelling and meditating long on this wonderful doctrine, this glorious doctrine, Perry McCall, the hypostatic union. God and man, two natures, one person. Not two persons, one nature. That's problematic. No, no. Two natures, one person. God and man, the God man. So, last. Week's episode, last question, 38, we thought about why was it requisite, as the catechism puts it, why was it necessary, we might say, that the mediator, our mediator, our Savior, be fully God. Now we're taking the other side of that equation. Why was it also necessary that in addition to being fully God, he also be fully man? It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. And so this catechism question helps us understand this half of the coin. Why was it necessary that he should be man? Question 39 answers it like this. It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling—I love that that phrasing there—have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness— Unto the throne of grace, again, what a marvelous answer! So devotional, so doxological, so jam-packed uh, with with theology uh, for the good of the Christian soul. Uh, I don't even, where, where to even begin. You know, let, let me let me begin by saying this: Christians, thoughtful Christians, well-read Christians, well-studied Christians, reformed and otherwise, uh, often think of well. Of course, it was necessary that. The mediator that my Savior be a human because I'm a human. He has to save humans. I'm a sinner, so he has to be a he has to stand in the place of sin sinful lawbreakers like me to take the to take the penalty I deserve. And and the Catechism does uh, help help us get our heads around that. Um, we need one who can sympathize with us in our weakness. Hebrews makes much of that regarding the, our our great High Priest. We'll talk more about that as we get on into the episode. He needs to sympathize with us in our weakness, so that fellow feeling of our infirmities. Uh, He needs to pray for us, intercede for us, but not be like a purely divine, non-human high priest, because then how would he relate to us and how would it be efficacious and effectual? So he needs to make intercession for us in our nature. So a lot of Christians understand that he needs to be a, a high priest who's a human like us. he Needs to be a uh, as as I'm a human lawbreaker. He needs to stand in the, in the place of a human lawbreaker in in reality, not just in in theory. We get that, but then I think the catechism question that rather the answer expands our understanding further. Um, as it talks about receiving adoption as sons, uh, comfort and access to the uh, with boldness unto his throne of grace, advancing our nature. That's an interesting one that we need to think a bit about as we get started here. So it takes the usual categories that Christians have in their in their mind regarding why our Savior had to be a man, and it affirms those. But I think it expands the understanding into other categories and other other boxes to check that beyond what we typically think of, uh, beyond what the average Christian typically thinks of. What do y'all think?
1: Yeah, I, I love this section and I uh, love this question. In fact, just for reader trivia, one day this could be a book giveaway question. What is Derek's favorite chapter of the Confession? And it's chapter eight on Christ the Mediator. So the corresponding questions in the larger catechism, I love them very much. Um, but uh, yeah, th- this is so rich and the thing that sticks out to me, I don't even know what you asked, Sean. I'm just going with what I want to talk about um, is that uh, it says the mediator should be man that he might advance our nature. You know, that is important because we as humans cannot um, uh, advance. We cannot rise up to heavenly things on our own. We cannot advance above our own nature We cannot rise up to glory and to heaven and to divinity um, on our own. We must have Christ who, uh, as our mediator, comes and and does this in our place so that by virtue of his work, we advance into that divinity. And so um, that's such a beautiful, beautiful thing that we actually will one day advance and rise up. We will reach glory, that great beatific vision, whatever that might be, where we behold God. That's um, it's um such a wonderful promise that we have and such a wonderful thing that Christ has come and secured for us.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And this advancing our nature, just to be clear, this is not saying that we're going to be superhuman or that we're going to have a nature other than the one that we do now so there are some people who believe in this thing called theosis uh, and they'll get that from the new testament where it talks about that we'll become partakers of the divine nature and in that context it's talking about the moral attributes of god so his his goodness is lovely you know everything about god that makes him holy and right and good we're going to possess those not an equal measure but our glorification are being made in the image of God, it's going to come to full bloom when we enter into glory. But the advancement of our nature here, I, I, my mind went to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, and I think that this advancement of the nature has presence significant for us because it gives us boldness. So listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, "'Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Jesus, through his blood, enters into holy places that you and I cannot get by our own efforts or merits, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the application. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice that this living way was made for us through Christ's blood. So this is why the mediator needs to be man. He needs to be man. He can't just be God because God doesn't bleed. There will be places in scripture where you'll see what we will call communication of properties. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where it talks about God purchased the church through his blood, we, keeping our categories consistent and uh, a place for everything, everything in its place, we know that the divine nature can't bleed because he's incorporeal, Uh, it's um, not material, but because Christ is one person with two natures, that Purchasing of our redemption by his blood. It's true. It's true of Jesus. Jesus did it. And so, because Jesus, through his blood, has opened up a new and living way for us to enter into God's holy presence, we should not shrink back. We should be very comforted that he has advanced our nature, that he, there is a human being at the Father's right hand right now. That should give you lots of comfort. If you were to go to a country, for example, that uh, it was a closed-off country. For all that you know, it's it's totally unexplored. Nobody's ever been there. How comforted would you be is if once you sailed up and you came to the shores of this remote island nation, you actually saw an American on the island? You would think, okay, um, I'm safe, right? It, there's, there's one of my kind. There's one like me that is able to exist here and be here, and so I'm comforted by that fact. Well, how can we come into God's presence and not be utterly consumed? Because one like us is at the Father's right hand. There, there is a man at the Father's right hand, and so we sinful men, though we are and continue to be, we will come to the Father because Christ is there preparing a place for us.
0: You know, it's interesting, there's a ton of cults out there that will sometimes say, well, the maybe not a ton of cults, but there's a number of cults out there that will say things like, well, the, the figure that you think is Jesus, the one who died on the cross for your sins to save you, it was actually, you know, the angel Gabriel or the angel Michael or some sort of other angelic being. Um, and I don't know if our Listeners have any exposure to those kind of cultic teachings or anything like that, but it's patently false, and and our our good friend J.G. Voss uh, is even responding to these cultic false claims in some of the comments that he offers regarding this question. Always helpful. You know, he says, why could the angel Gabriel or some other angel not have become a mediator to save the human race from sin? He says, well, the angels are not members of the human race. Uh, They do not possess human nature therefore none of them could be qualified to become the second adam to undo the wrong done by the first adam so i know it seems like a pedantic point but it is worth making because there is a lot of misunderstanding out there uh, in the wider christian world maybe not so much in the reformed world though it's not inconceivable that it might have some uh, have some there might be some corners of misunderstanding but in the wider church world i mean how often how often do you, you see these, these sweetsy posts on Facebook or social media or just in common conversation with folks like, oh, well, so-and-so died, they passed away, and they've become an angel today? And, you know, and of course, you know, someone's mourning the death of, your, of their grandmother. You're not going to pounce all over them and, and berate them and give them a theological lecture as they're, you know, in the midst of their, the pangs of grief, but that, that statement is incorrect. People don't become angels. Those are—it's a different order of created beings: angels and humans. Uh, you know, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. No, no it just—just just none of that. That's—that's—I don't know where where this stuff comes from, but it's just—it's—it's it's just superstition. It's false understanding. Humans remain humans. Angels remain angels. And so, it was not possible that some member of a different created rank, a different created order, like an angel, could be the mediator for God's people. No, it needed to be a man like us to stand in for us. And so that's why, that's why it was necessary, it was requisite, as the catechism says, that the mediator be a man. Vos goes on, it was necessary that he partake of flesh and blood, that is, possess a human nature, because in order for that mediator to act as the representative of human beings, he must first of all be a member of the human race. Even in ordinary human organizations, Voss says, a person cannot be an officer until he is first a member. Christ could not be a redeemer of the human race unless he was first of all a member of the human race. Since sin and ruin came by man, redemption must come by man as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. That wonderful federal theology, 2 Adam theology that Paul gets into there in 1 Corinthians 15.
1: Hey, I have a question, Sean. You said that certain cults say that. I've never met a horse that talks. Yes. Uh, Well, (laughs) you know, being a child of the 90s,
0: I met various members of the Indianapolis cults. And they said, you know, Angel Gabriel died for their sins. And I said, man, you're a dirty Uh, heretic. Go back to Indianapolis. Get out of here.
1: That was another Sean joke. Maybe the worst one yet that I pulled. All right. Um, not, not the Indy uh, the, indie Nick, cults, the cults. Nick has joined us. Nick has joined us. We are now weaker. If you remember my introduction, we are now weaker as Nick has joined. But before he comes and ruins this podcast, let me just say, um, and for those of you who think, man, Derek really goes hard on Nick sometimes, it's actually because I think Nick is the smartest one of this podcast, and I'm jealous of his abilities. Um So we're going to cut that out of the recording, aren't we? Just kidding. Uh, Galatians 4, 6. And because ye are sons, God has... Oh, just kidding. That's not the verse I want to read. Hebrews 2, 16. Sorry, I have a list of verses here. Hebrews 2, 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Um, That goes to what Sean was saying. Um, You know, people who want to say, well, we're going to get, you know, we get our wings or angels and whatever. Uh, the real story is actually much better because we judge the angels. We reign over the angels in the end. And the real story is so much better. And what God has secured for us in Christ Jesus is far better than being an angel. It's a son of God, a redeemed son of the Lord. So I just wanted to say that Nicholas, welcome. Well, it's good to be here. You know, the only thing I wanted to add is to help
3: our listeners kind of consider this, you know, all the things that have been said is if the punishment requires an ounce of flesh, then you are required to have flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really simple exchange whenever you think of it in those terms. A thing that isn't fleshly, a thing that's uniquely spiritual, like an angel or any other spiritual being, uh, they haven't the qualification of simply the capacity to suffer for us. They they can't experience the pain. They can't experience the punishment. It would be unjust. It would be a bizarre uh, extension of the hand of God against something that's not like us. It'd be insufficient uh, in much the same way, uh, that the, uh, system of sacrificial beasts were insufficient. Um, and so, you know, even if an angel did have blood, the spilling of that blood uh, would avail for nothing. At least ultimately it wouldn't, it can only stand promissorily. And even then, that's never what the Lord has shown forth, at least according to angelic blood. Um, uh, if that even exists,
0: yeah, oh, good, good clarifications there. Spin hinted at this in the last episode, and so we're getting into it here in in this particular question. You know, we were thinking perhaps more so of the passive obedience of Christ in the last question, with Jesus, with our Lord Jesus, dying on the cross, uh, enduring passively uh, that justice being poured out upon him, and here in the, today's question, it's helping us think about the. Active obedience of Christ. So, yeah, passive obedience, that is what happened to him as he endured it, but then also his active obedience, that is what he did actively, deliberately, purposefully uh, in keeping of God's law on behalf of his people. And that's part of what uh, question 39 here uh, helps us uh, better understand that it was necessary that the mediator should be man because he needed to perform obedience to the law, the active obedience of Christ. Uh, that marvelous quote uh, that J. Gresham Machen sent to, via telegram to his friend, uh, Professor John Murray, as he lay there on his deathbed. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. Uh, it's a marvelous quote, but Spin, help us think a little bit about what the active obedience of Christ means. What was what was Machen so thankful for? Uh, what is the, What are the Westminster Divines helping us understand here about
2: the mediator performing obedience to the law and that active obedience of Christ? A couple decades ago, there was the federal vision controversy. I would say it's not altogether put to bed, uh, which is really unfortunate, uh, because I think you had men like Guy Waters uh, and others just really demonstrated that the tenets of the federal vision were untenable and they were altogether out of accord with the Westminster standards. And one man, Norman Shepherd, who I don't know if you would file him nice and neatly under the federal vision. He might be proto-federal vision, but uh, he wrote a paper on him in seminary. He popularized the idea that Christ's passive obedience, that his wrath-satisfying sacrifice, that the merits of, of his passive obedience were imputed to us, but that by our active obedience, we were either made right with God or we we fell away from that grace. And Machen was so thankful for the active obedience of Christ because— if only the passive obedience of Jesus was imputed to us, then at best our slate is wiped clean. And then we are put for all intents and purposes under a covenant of works. And we can't keep the covenant of works. Adam in a perfect Edenic paradise did not keep the covenant of works. He he did not perfectly keep God's law. And looking at my track record, I can only speak for myself, I know that I would not keep God's law personally, perfectly, perpetually, not just externally, mind you, but in thought, word, and deed. Mm. So the act of obedience of Christ is absolutely necessary because it was a man who broke the covenant of works. And so for men to be redeemed from the covenant of works, a man needs to keep the covenant of works on their behalf. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do. He put himself under the law, this question is going to, or this answer is going to tell us that he put himself under the law, and the closest analogy that I've used to explain this profoundly gracious and condescending act of Christ, it would be, again, this is dim, but it would be like the parent submitting to the same rules that they have Applied to their children, mm-hmm. you know, it, mom and dad in our house, we set the bedtime. It's seven thirty, right uh, for our oldest. He's six years old, so it's seven thirty bedtime. Mm-hmm. It would be very humble of me to submit myself to those same rules to which I'm subjecting my child, And that Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity puts himself under the law in our nature, that alone is amazing. That alone is worthy of us getting lost in love and wonder and praise. But as we'll see, continuing through the question too, I I can't help myself. You, You say one part, it kind of naturally flows into another one. Yeah. And have a fellow feeling of our infirmities. Christ subjected himself to All the miseries of this life, not just the misery of the cross. That was his consummate act of condescension and his his being buried and, and suffering the wrath of God. But everything miserable about life in a fallen world, Jesus experienced it. And so he can sympathize with us and he knows what we're feeling. Sometimes we'll say that to someone who's going through a really acute season of suffering. We'll say, I know how you feel. And we might know really closely how a person feels. Maybe we've walked through a similar experience ourselves, but but Jesus, all the while remaining sinless, he doesn't have internal temptations like we do, caveat, right? But Jesus knows our suffering better than we know our suffering, actually.
0: Hmm.
2: And he was willing to do that. So just countless reasons to praise Jesus for being man and continuing to be man as our mediator
0: it goes to show i mean that those objections or those hypotheticals that are raised by the apostle some of those later epistles of oh you would be justified by the law you must keep the whole of the law if you would be justified uh, when jesus makes similar uh, statements in the gospels uh, the good news is it's been done (laughs) there there is one who has kept the law in it's perfectly and fully uh, in, in its entirety uh, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so salvation by obedience, by perfect obedience uh, to God's righteous standards, uh, you can't do it and I can't do it, but someone needs to do it if there's going to be salvation, if there's going to be redemption. Well, it has been done, and it's been done for you by the Lord Jesus. That's why we needed him uh, to be man. And so he did. He accomplished it for us, uh, thankfully, that in that act of obedience. Or as the, the catechism puts it here, um, uh, obedience to the law. The next clause, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature and have a fellow feeling of our infirmities. I think those two uh, go well together. Um, You know, it's interesting how we thought about in the last question, in the last episode, about how we needed God to bear up the punishment of God, uh, bearing our sin in his body on the tree. But here also, so we, so we have that divinity aspect that's necessary, but now we have the humanity aspect that's also necessary. That's why it could be no other way. It had to be the God-man. We needed one to suffer and make intercession for us in our nature. And Spins already touched on this. Um, I've already touched on this. I think Nick has already touched on this as well. So, But it's still, it still it bears repeating of this is why we have to have this great high priest. We have to have this great high priest be man like us, <laughs> to be touched with our infirmities, to have that sympathy... Uh, to make intercession for us as one who's experienced it, as one who knows. What do y'all think?
3: You know, Sean. One of the things I want to touch on is, you know, just how important that old question that we ask very often whenever we admit people into communicant membership in a PCA church. Whether it's, uh, you know, a child making a profession of faith, whether it's somebody coming into the church, we ask them the question, and it's the old evangelism explosion uh, question: If God were, uh, if you were to meet God today. And he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What's your answer going to be? And, you know, there, there are really only a few ways a person can answer this, but there are two particular, more common categories. You got one category that's going to say, well, I'm a good person, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, I did this, I did that. I, I came to church. Um, I was a Presbyterian baptized on the eighth day kind of deal, right? <laughs> and it. and what is that? That's That's an exposition of a works religion. Uh, I should be let in. I should be acceptable before the face of God because of me. I'm my redeemer. That's why I should be in heaven. Um, you may have the person who's really honest and says simply, I'm not a believer. He shouldn't let me into heaven. That's the third option. Un, unusual for that one to get said, even amongst unbelievers. Um, but then the, the, uh, the other one, I think the only right option would be the answer because Christ died for me. And, and it goes back to that, um, it goes back to the active and passive obedience of christ um you know there's no hope apart from him and and just how important that is to the christian life Uh, it's it's a you know in essence a very brief um simple to explain sort of uh, doctrine in the christian faith but but so much turns on it uh without it uh we really we've undone ourselves entirely um the language here that we have about having a fellow feeling of our infirmities. Uh, living where I have li- uh, am living now in uh, South Texas, it seems like it's the constant practice of church plants to name their churches Christ the Redeemer, Christ the King, and I'm still waiting for a church to be named Christ the Commiserator, <laughs> because this spells out this idea of who Jesus is. Christ the Commiserator, the one who co-lingers with us in the midst of our miseries. And we could talk about this salvifically, um, about Christ enter in, entering into the miseries that we deserve. Um, we could talk about it uh, being in regard to Christ suffering in our place, very particularly. Um, but, but really, I think the larger catechism is talking about his fellow feeling of our infirmities. He knows what it is to be in our humanity, and so uh, he, he can relate to us and he can likewise minister to us as a living uh, prophet, priest, and king. And there's so much comfort in that, I think, for the Christian, because what it's saying is you've got the eternal God who is wrapped in flesh, and though he is transcendent, he likewise knows what it is whenever you say, you know, you stubbed your toe, uh, or you've got disappointing news, or you've mourned at the grave uh, of a lost loved one, or you've you've dealt with or felt the the weight of sickness, whether in your body or in the body of a loved one, uh, you have a Lord who can actually come alongside you, throw an arm around your shoulder and in prayer uh, actually have a heart for you, not just a concern about something over there, this little creature, this thing that's not not who he is or not something he can ultimately relate to. Maybe he can help them, but, but rather he can enter in uh, with a fellow feeling. He can engage with our hearts as as we endure life. And uh, that, that's a Redeemer and a Savior that I want, and that's one uh, magnificent aspect of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ, is, is that's who we have.
0: Yeah, that's right. To, to, to sympathize with, I mean, to sympathize means literally to suffer with, and that's the kind of Savior we have. It's not just God looking upon us saying, well, I know what you're going through in theory, or even in truth, because I made you and I'm, I'm, I'm observing all these things happening to you, watching on. No, it's because the Savior has been in our shoes, so to speak. He's, he's, he's walked where we have trod, uh, and he knows what it's like, and that there is immense comfort in there, uh, that he is that sympathetic Savior and sympathetic High Priest. Getting into that last clause after that final semicolon here in 39, that we might receive the adoption of sons, and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Now, Derek, I know you earlier you, you were starting to read from Galatians four, and then you said, "No, no, I want to read a different Bible verse." But I wonder if you had Galatians four open because you were already anticipating uh, this clause here, thinking about adoption as sons, thinking about the Savior being born under the law in fullness of time. Um, is that is that where you were going with that that Galatians four passage?
1: Yeah, that's that's it uh yeah good good thinking uh you you picked up exactly what i was going for there you anticipated it um yeah i was i was reading i started to read galatians 4 6 and because your sons god had sent forth the spirit of a son into your hearts crying abba father um and really just thinking on the um the sonship um the fact that we are sons of God in the Son, um, that we have the Spirit um, of God in us, um, that we are able to call on God as Father, um, because we are truly sons now, um, not by nature but by um, by Spirit. And um, but yeah, that uh, you're right. That's exactly where I was going. I appreciate that. Thanks for thanks for noticing.
0: I try I try to take note of you, Derek. I mean you just you just have that look about you that it's hard not to take notice. <laughs>
3: That's
0: it. <laughs> We're thinking about receiving adoption as sons, and I mean, one of the things that comes to my mind is that sons receive an inheritance. I think that's one of the key theological ideas, and it was necessary that the mediator be a man so that we might receive adoption as sons because he's the elder brother now, because he's man like us, and therefore what God has for him we receive also the inheritance that Christ gets, we get, because we've received that adoption as sons. I mean, that's one of the major the, the major emphases uh, that we find in the Scripture and in the ancient world is that that's why all Christians, you know, men and women, are called sons of God, because sons in the ancient world receive the inheritance. And guess what? It's all for all of God's children that the Father has lined up for his son. All of his sons get it. All yeah. of his sons by adoption get it.
1: Well, and if, if he's given us his son... Well, you know, will he not freely give us all things? You know, I mean, that's and if you read Romans, especially chapter eight, this is the idea that you get. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's um, you get this idea of really that there's nothing that, that's going to be held back from um, from us, from God. That um, that's what this sonship uh, really entails. You know, just for our listeners, it, for those that might be interested, you know, on the subject of adoption, because it's not often talked about, there's a great modern treatment by Dave Garner on adoption, and um, I would just, it's called adoption, I think it's called Sons in the Sun, perhaps, Um, I would encourage people to read that book, it's very, very good.
3: Whenever we talk about the doctrine of adoption, what we are focusing our attention on is, in a sense, the experimental aspect of our redemption, at least this side of heaven, and and in that which is to come, it, it's, it's the riches on the table. It's the benefit of Christ not only poured out judicially, but it's poured out really, where we experience what it is to be known by God, loved by God as we are in Christ, what it, what it is to, to feel the approbation or the approval of God day to day, the correction of God when we need the correction of God, which I would also say is day by day, uh, the sustenance of God as he places things on the table. So whenever we, yes, come and we hear the word, but also at the Lord's Supper, when we're sustained likewise through the ministry of our own baptism throughout the course of the Christian life. And so it should be understood that the doctrine of adoption, it's not just like a static thing. No, it's it's more like dad coming home with a bag of groceries. And, and what it is, is it's all of the good fruits of the cross of Jesus Christ for the Christian. Uh, it's, it's, it's the Lord holding his hands out and saying, here, take, eat, and drink. Uh, and, and it's such a wonderful thing for us to just simply think on, that that is likewise because of who Christ is in that he was a man. Um, you know, that, that the riches of God are informed in the way in which they're poured out. His graces are unique because of our frame, and our frame is known particularly because it was assumed um, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's it's not like uh, let me let me put it into these terms. It's not like the socks you get on Christmas that you really don't want, or the mm. ill-fitting knitted sweater. No, it's perfect. and it's according to your good, your delight, your sustenance, your keeping, your defense, all of those things wrapped in the wonderful mercies and grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, far from the Christian just skipping over, and say, oh yeah, okay. Well, we really champion justification, okay? That's good. We really mm-hmm. champion sanctification. Well, that's good too. You should also champion adoption, because if you don't, you're probably not, you know, tasting and seeing. You're probably not really enjoying what it is to be a Christian. Um, and so, yeah, just I just encourage our listeners to think deeply on that, and and uh, and to have eyes open about the wonders of, of the adoptive grace of Jesus.
0: That's a good word, and that's that's part of the reason why you know we love the Westminster Standards and the Westminster Confession, and the Westminster Confession stands out in that regard, that it has its distinct chapter, standalone chapter on the doctrine of adoption. Uh, it's 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 unique in that regard amongst some of the earlier reformed confessions. Uh, that's part of why it's relatively short is that not a whole lot had been written or codified uh, prior to that um, in the in the earlier uh, generations of the of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so this, this emphasis, which we think is, is a biblical emphasis on the doctrine of adoption, uh, it has a uniquely enshrined place, or at least semi-uniquely enshrined place in the Westminster Standards, and it gets emphasis here, too, in the Catechism. I mean, we make so much in the Christian life about being servants of God, slaves of God, slaves of Christ, you know, being a slave of of uh, of the Savior, doulos, and rightly so. We are his servants. We, we belong to him. But we're also sons, aren't we? and sons have rights, and sons have privileges that a slave doesn't, that a servant doesn't. And that that aspect is being emphasized here uh, in the Catechism question, that sons have rights and privileges uh, that the elder brother Jesus has has merited, that he has secured, and because he is our elder brother and we are the little brothers, we get them too, and that God is glad to dispense those rights and privileges to his sons because we've been received uh, unto him in such a fashion. And, and because of that, as we, as we look at this, that last clause there at the end of the question, uh, we have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Um, there's all kinds of directions that we could go here in thinking on this one, but at least for me, the first thing that comes to mind is that because there's a man there pleading my cause and pleading my case interceding for me, namely the God-man, Jesus Christ, it conveys to me that I have a right to be there. There's a place for me. Before the throne of grace, and that, therefore, I can come in with a boldness, not, 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 yes, with a reverence, with a, with a holy awe about me that that reveres the Lord God for who He is and His God, uh, and His deity, no doubt, in His Majesty, but at the same time, not with this sort of. Not, not, not with this sort of reluctant trepidation of, I have no business being here, I'm not wanted here, he should probably just spit in my face and throw me out, I have, no, I have no business coming before this throne of grace. No, no, I can come with a holy boldness, a reverential boldness before the throne of grace, because Christ has secured my place and my right to come before this throne of grace, and that's just a marvelous thought.
3: And you know, where do we otherwise see the throne of God in the Bible? Well, we see it in Isaiah 6, don't we? Um... The woe is me, for I am undone. Uh, I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And there's a pointed change, and there's a pointed shift, uh, at least in the language that we have within the catechism, and I think in the New Testament theology as well, that whenever we come before the throne of God, we don't come as we once did. We don't come Uh, as men undone. We don't come as men unclean if we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. We come as men cleansed. We come as men called sons. Uh, We come beloved of God uh, with a place in his holy throne room. Uh, And it's just a glorious change. It's a wonderful shift. You know, the idea that you can have comfort, not just access, but you can have comfort in the throne room of God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, What a blessed state that the christian can celebrate you know whenever they put their finger on that they're talking about the security the christian has in jesus we are just as comfortable before the face of the father as jesus christ the eternal son of god has been forever hmm. if we're in him and uh w- what a, what a thing to hope in you know what yeah. a thing what a thing to revel in and that, that that's not just future this is not just the day of glory. This is the Christian in his regular access to the Father in prayer. You know, this this isn't just a coming thing. This is already now. That's right. I mean, you're going to stand in your body on the day of glory, and you're going to behold your God face to face on the on this earth, um, you know, the hope of Job. But, but this is something you have even now in the ministry of prayer. That's wonderful.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, a- access and comfort. That's right, because there's a man there, interceding before the throne of God, <laughs> namely the God Man Jesus Christ. Not only do I have as also as a man, as a human business being there, and not just a a barely <laughs> barely having business there, but that boldness. You have every reason to be, to do business before the Father's throne. Glad access, welcome access bold access, and comfort. You have every reason to do business before the throne of God. Not just a barely there permission, uh, but a boldness. That's a marvelous, a boldness and a comfort before the holy throne of God. What a marvelous thing.
1: So go to Him, right? I mean, that's, if you take, you know, if it, our listeners will just take anything away from today, um, take that away. You know, take what was just said and um, and go to Him. Don't be afraid to. Don't, don't hesitate. But goldly, but goldly, Boldly go before the throne of grace, plead and know that you have one who's interceding on your behalf, one who's gone before and made a way and um, and uh, trust that you will be received, that you'll be, you know, you've been, as the hymn says, ransom, uh, redeemed, restored, forgiven, however that goes. And, you know, and, and trust that that that's true. And uh, let that be an encouragement to you.
3: You know, I want to point out one of my favorite Presbyterian verses uh, from Revelation seven eleven, uh, and this really ought to be the Christian's hope. You know, because what we're doing is we're getting to um, gaze into heaven. I know so many enjoy that language, but that is what this passage does. That the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying. and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him night and day in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. That's your hope, Christian, and that's why the mediator between God and man must be man.
0: What a wonderful note to end on. It's been a good discussion today, fellas, and uh, so on behalf of myself, uh, Nick, and Derek, and kind of on behalf of Spin and Matt, I mean, let's be honest, they didn't contribute much here today. Matt, certainly nothing at all. Spin, he was all right, but on behalf of the crew, we're glad you joined us as we've been thinking through this marvelous doctrine here in Catechism question number 39, why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? We hope you'll join us again next week as we take up question number 40 and think about this marvelous doctrine even some more and think about the necessity of our mediator not just being God, not just being man, but being God and man in one person. So until then, friends, we look forward to having you join us again next time here at Larger for Life. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, You can follow us at Facebook.com slash Larger for Life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for
1: Life.